Hi, it's Dave Levine here. It's great to have you with me for episode number 20 of the Sports Stories podcast. Today I have with me a good friend and former colleague, Kurt Lindley. Not only is Kurt a fellow South African, he is also a really creative and innovative thinker and practitioner, and somebody who always makes me think and reflect. I'm really excited about sharing the conversation with you today, as I know you will take something really tangible from listening in. Kurt is very open about the highs and lows of his life and calls on all his experience to humbly want to help others. So let's not waste any more time and let me introduce founder of Be More L&D, an experienced developer of people, both in sport and outside of sport, Mr. Kurt Lindley. Kurt, it's really great to have you with me on the Sports Stories podcast today. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, I know you've got a lot going on at the moment, so I really appreciate and value your time today. The one thing I'm actually most excited about is that I'm talking to a fellow South African here, and this is something I've never had before on a podcast. So it's great to talk to a fellow South African, but also somebody that's also gone on a similar journey and has connections with South Africa as I do. Uh, And I'm sure we'll come to some of that later on because I can see that in in the background. So Kurt, where I'd like to start is is a little bit around you just introducing yourself rather than me do it and, and give us a little bit of a sense of your first memory of sport. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I'm Kurt, born in South Africa. Uh, I, I lived there until I was six years old, which is probably the point at which my most prevalent sport story um, occurred. Um, so we'll come back to that. But yeah, I, I, I've spent 20 odd years working across sport, education uh, and, and business uh, more so in the last couple of years. Um, I've had the privilege of working with yourself, Dave, and uh, I, I have, when you talked about quotes earlier about things that stuck with you, I've got a couple that hang in my head that you have gifted me, so they might pop out as well. Um, and yeah, I spend my time mainly now um, doing people development stuff across those sectors, but walking my daughter to school or skipping to school uh, and trying to ground myself in kind of like real practice that's like based on theory, but it's, it's application, it's, it's used in the environment, it's felt by your practitioners that you're working with or by the businesses or the organizations that you're working with it's a real sense of we, we, we've gone on it we've gone on something together we felt it um so yeah that's 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 kind of how i work in me in a nutshell um there's probably more to explore so, so i was a relatively rotund child uh, with the nickname tank so you know i was i was carrying you know if, I, I, if you wanted to put me anywhere i would definitely be a defender in football that could just block people's path because i was a, a of size um but um my first memory was actually a big one that sticks with me is um if anybody knows it, it's the comrades ultra marathon um 87 kilometers you race from durban to meet about peter maritzburg or peter maritzburg and um, to durban depending on the year and i have this memory as a six-year-old of watching a guy called bruce fordyce um run that race and being allowed by my parents sillyly sillyly to, to, to enter into where everybody was running and happened to run alongside Bruce. Now, he'll never remember this, but I've met him twice since, thankfully, and told him this story. But he gave me a biscuit from his pouch of food while he was running. Um, and, I, you know, if we fast forward, I have now run that race as an adult. And um, because I now reside in the UK, when you run the, 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 the comrades, you get to go in a special VIP area because you're an international athlete. And who happens to be there drinking a cup of tea during the expo? It's Bruce Fordyce. Um, so I went over and said, hi, we met when I was six. Uh, obviously, he never remembered it, but it's a, it's a story that stuck with me. And it actually helped me through that particular race, which might actually come up in this. Um, and he tells a really funny story about how, how he kind of looked after himself during his races, um, which made me laugh, which was um, people would ask, you know, how do you fuel? How do you eat whilst you're running such a long race? Now, again, that race starts at 6.30 in the morning. Now, he's a quick runner. He would have done it by lunchtime. So his answer was he has three or four cups of coffee in the morning and he's home watching everybody else cross the line by lunchtime. Yeah. So all these things kind of like join together. So that's my, that's my first memory and it's one that sticks with me and it, and it continues with me. Go on then. So, so tell me the little bit in between, um, between you know, that memory of being introduced to the Comrades Marathon and then obviously fast forwarding, there's been some stuff gone on in between to allow you to then run the, the race. Why did you run the race or what's happened in between? Uh, oh, mate, lots. Um, so I'm a, very, I'm a believer in the universe and in the sense that the universe puts things in, in front of you and you, it's you, it's not, things aren't planned out and it, there's no decisions made. 
but things are put in front of you and it's up to you to decide. So you could say, well, I'm one of many people as a six-year-old that would have met Bruce during that period. But you might not have then put the next stage together, which was actually um, a couple of years before I ran the Comrades. I ran, um, I ran the Two Oceans, um, which is another ultramarathon, 56 kilometers, so it's not as long. Um, but Bruce was paid to be what they call a bus, which is one of the slower buses, um, which is actually running a certain pace that people would follow. And ironically, we crossed the line at a very similar time. So he happened to be actually just over the line as I crossed. And I went, and that was the first time I'd seen him as adults. I didn't tell him the story then, but I've got a great picture of me standing on the winner's podium. I'm not a winner <laughs> alongside him because he was in the VIP area and that's where he went. And I was kind of went over to see him. And I think, why did that happen? Well, maybe it was just a kind of a meant to be sort of situation. Now I could have run past him and he could have ignored me or I could have said hello and said, is it possible to get a photo? Can we create this situation? So to then see him two or three years later during the, the comrades, it was like, I need to go and see this guy and have another conversation with him. Um, but how I got to the comrades, well, you know, I have a very traumatic um, thing that happened in my life and it's my teacher now. So I lost my wife five years ago um, to cancer. Uh, she was diagnosed in 2009. And um, what I realized um, when she was diagnosed with cancer and her journey was that on a daily basis, this was a woman who was dealing with quite large amounts of pain that none of us could really, really envisage. We couldn't understand what 36 hours of an operation to remove um, a mass from your abdomen is like and the recovery from that and to be returning to hospital because of infections or having secondary operations for other things. Um, I, I felt that I needed in some way to push my body to a point where it, it, it could go no further. Like what was the edge of possible for the human body, for, for, for me, for Kurt, not for anybody else, because there are ultra, ultra people who run huge marathons, climb mountains, stay underwater for a long time, that sort of thing. I'm not trying to be those people. I'm trying to say how far could Kurt Lindley's body go in terms of preparation for an event and running an event. So I chose to do these two ultra marathons, the, uh, sorry, the two oceans was the first one. And it was more of a, I needed to try and understand what that felt like. That, that sense of being at the edge and then crossing that line and, and, and crossing over. And, and I will say probably more so during the comrades than the two oceans, the sense of euphoria. So I remember getting to 70 kilometers in that race and knowing that in my head, if I didn't change the way I looked at things, I was not going to finish that race. There was just not enough time to finish the race. Say a little bit more about how did it feel and when, what did you change in your mind to get there in time? So um, I'd read the night before my cousin's kind of story of him running that race. So he's um, six months younger than me. And uh, for whatever reason, he chose to write down how he felt about his running of the race, which was two or three years before. And he'd got to a similar distance, but I think he might have even got earlier. It might have been 50 kilometers. And he'd basically said to himself, he's not going to, he doesn't think he's going to finish. But what he did is he reframed it. And it was just so powerful the way you've reframed it. Cause he said, well, I've never run this far before. So actually I've, I've achieved something. And then he said to himself, something along the lines of, if I just take one more step, that's further than I've already run. And if I could just continue to take one more step, who knows how far I'll get. And I was like, well, okay, I need to stop thinking about finishing the race. I need just to say, can I put one step in front of the other? And that's pretty much what I did. I got to a point where I was hyperventilating. I couldn't breathe properly because of it. I was struggling to take on water. I was already overloaded with water. I was having to suck on ice. I was going to like, on the way, on the route, there are people with ice box just sitting watching the race. And I would go over to people in their gardens and grab blocks of ice out of their cooler boxes and just put it on my lips because I couldn't drink water, but I needed to stay somehow like moist and hydrated. And I was just, right, just take one more step, just take one more step. And I don't know, maybe 75 kilometers, I realized I could actually start to jog again. Um, and, you know, and I have, I've written a blog about this and I call it the last seven kilometers. So I got to 80 kilometers. And mathematically, it was possible that I would finish within the 12-hour window. And then I said to myself, well, if it's mathematically possible, like it is possible. So stop the whole one more step and start considering possible, you know, like don't, don't be telling yourself this is a steep hill. 
So I, I had written on the inside of my arm a, word, a, a statement that said lightweight. Now I think it's like a Rick Fignaglio or something like he's a bodybuilder guy um, who said this, but it was my personal trainer who's into that guy uh, said, you need a positive affirmation when things are difficult. What will it be? So on one arm, I had my wife's name and on the other arm, I had lightweight. So every time I got to a hill, I would just look at this statement and go lightweight and just, it would just, it would just help me up the hill. Um, but yeah, that's, I can ramble forever, mate. Sorry. No, no, that, but it's an amazing sort of experience to push yourself to, to the limit. Do, do you feel that like that really did push you and did you gain what you'd hoped to gain from that experience? Yeah. Yes. I honestly, it was absolutely amazing to get to a point where you, you're about to give in to get to that point where you're saying to yourself, I can't, it's, you know, you're, you're almost saying it's impossible and you're weighing up. Well, what do I do? Do I sit by the roadside and wait for somebody to pick me up? You know, my family are going to be at the other end, waiting, worrying, concerned. Do I just keep running? Well, no, I can't because I'm hyperventilating, right? Well, I can walk. And, and it was just, that it was like, well, just keep going, just taking one more step. And, and it was euphoric. It was like a, the, the highest of natural highs you could get. You were delirious, yeah. but you were on a high. I mean, your body's aching, but you were yet feeling some level of like on another plane of thinking. Um, and are these, and then, thought, are these thoughts going through your mind as you're running? Or were you really conscious of the decisions you were making? And um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, because there was one point where the 12-hour bus, which is the last bus that you need to follow, we call it a bus, it's a dude with a flag on his back and there's lots of people behind him. It went past me. Now I had a timing chart and on my timing chart, that bus was going too fast. So I started to panic and think maybe all my timings were wrong. So I tried to catch up with this 12 hour bus and I just couldn't keep up with it. And it was just like this whole moment of going, I've got, I've got it wrong. I've got it wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. So and I had to, came in, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose I, having met people like yourself many years ago, I, I've become better at self-coaching. Um, and it was just a case of have a good conversation with yourself, Kurt. Don't chase the bus. Consider what you can do. Consider what steps you can take. Consider, I used to hate my father for saying this statement. He always used to say, there's no such word as can't. And I hated it. I hated it so much. Like, I don't use that word hate that often, but it, was, it would elicit a really negative emotion in me. Like, oh, I can't do this. And what? Actually, the reality is, there's not many things you can't do. It's about how much you desire it and how much effort you would like to put into it. So anytime I thought I couldn't, it was more me saying, you're making a choice not to do it, Kurt. So what would the alternative be? Well, you make a choice to do it. Okay, right, commit, put some effort in. Wow. And go on then, how close to the time, how close to the 12 hours were you when you, when you finished? Uh, something like 11 hours, 57 minutes and 98 seconds. Uh, literally, I ran the fastest seven kilometers of the whole race between 80 and 87 kilometers. Um, I, I had a timing chip so my family could see that I was actually not going to make it. But then I crossed the last, um, the last timing chip area. They were like, he has to run, run something like a seven and a half minute kilometer after running 80 kilometers where every kilometer before that might have been an eight or a nine kilometer kind of like minute, um, nine minute uh, kilometer before that or eight minute kilometer before that. I, you know, I haven't actually looked at the maths in detail, but what I, <laughs> I just remember that kindly um, a person about 200 meters uh, after the 80 kilometer mark had a cardboard piece of card and on it it said um, you need to run a eight and a half minute kilometer to finish the race but that was crossed out and underneath it it wrote he obviously was like keeping up with the timing saying now you need to run a seven and a half minute kilometer to cross the line. And I was just like, this is hilarious because now this person knows every person line is seeing what they should have been running. But now it's, you're at your most tired and you're being asked to run your fastest. It, it's just this contradiction. Now, and and what, I, what, I, what I found fascinating is the guy who was the leader of the 12 hour brush, um, I caught up with him as I got into Peter Maritzburg as the race ended. And I passed them as I was going into the stadium. And I was like, that's, that's bad. Like I was, I was like, I was like angry at the situation because they, this guy had obviously realized he'd gone too fast and now was having to slow down because his job was to finish on 12 hours. Uh, and because there's a prize for the last person to cross at 12 hours, as well as there is a prize for the first person. So all these people are waiting with this bus, uh, you know, and I was like, how dare you run past me and make me feel so nervous about not completing this race. 
So Kurt, it's a truly amazing experience by the sounds of it, you know, and it's elicited all those feelings uh, of the highs and lows. Looking back on it and reflecting back on that whole experience, what have you taken away from it? What are the learnings and the messages that you think have really stayed with you that, you know, the listeners in would could sort of share and take and use from your, um, your experience? Self-belief. Like I stood on that line uh, at five, I think it was like 5.30 rather than 6.30. I stood on that line having not done any proper training for probably two months, maybe three months, because my wife was really ill in the hospital. Um, so I, I had to care for her. So there was no training other than an hour here and an hour there. But I stood on the start line and I was like, you've got to give it your all. So one is self-belief. You know, get on that start line. You know, put yourself in a position to have a go. I, and I'm going I'm to borrow, sta- Dave, I'm going to borrow your statements here, mate. So I, me and you, we met many years ago. I remember one of the things you said to me, and this applies in different contexts. You said to me, Kurt, do you apply for jobs that you can get and can do? Or do you apply for jobs that you will grow into? And you probably use different language to that, but that's what I took from it. And I was like, actually, Dave, you're right. I'm only applying for jobs I can do. And maybe I should be applying for jobs that I'm yet to be able to do, but I know I've got the capacity and the skill within me somewhere. And it's the same for the start line of the race. You know, like, I don't know if I can do this, but I know I've got the skill and the capacity or the, the, the belief in me to cross that line. So I would say to people, you know, put yourself on the start line, you know, get yourself in the race. Um, and that's something that you know, you've gifted to me. And another statement that you've gifted to me um, and I've used many a time and it belongs to somebody else, but it was you that introduced me to it was um, if we change the way that we look at things, the things we look at change. So if I look at a hill and go, that's a huge hill. That's a huge hill. <laughs> but if I change the way I look at it, and I might say, just one more step, just one more step, uh, or the statement on my arm, which was lightweight. Uh, so I would say the other message is reframe stuff in a way that allows you to believe it's possible. Like if the hardest thing is in front of you, life's a choice. Make the choice to have a go. And if you don't make the choice to have a go, know that that was your choice. Know that that was your, you made that cognitive decision not to give it all um yeah brilliant stuff you know and and i love the idea how you've picked up the the odd phrase or you know quote saying motto whatever it is to you and and helped it really guide and inform your journey and i wonder have you got another experience in terms of your sports journey other than the comrades where either of those mottos have really helped you to live the journey you wanted or you know overcome some other barriers that you've faced so i think they all belong to the same philosophy so you can use different words, but the meaning's the same. So there's no secret in my head or the circles around the fact that my company is called Be More. Um, and it's just like the Nike statement around just do it. Um, so Be More is you wake up in the morning and ask yourself, how can I be more today? You know, you, if you can ask yourself that every morning and try to be more, like that's a choice. So this morning, simple thing. And I, I, I want to be fitter, right? I can run. I, my be more is to be healthier. I will do a 10K this morning before I get on this call with you. And I will play with my daughter for 45 minutes before I get on this call with you, hence pushing the call backwards. So it's, I think the mottos are around kind of like what, whichever motto you choose, they're often about like, how can we be more like for ourselves or for other people, but how can we just be more? What would we say to people though who know the theory and have the mottos, but still can't quite get there? It is something about putting, putting things into practice. Yeah. We, we've probably met many clients that are saying, like, you know, you have the great conversation with clients in a mentoring or a coaching perspective and they're nodding and they're saying, yes, I'm going to do these things. And then they go away and you meet them again in a week or two weeks or three weeks and nothing's changed. Um, and that's, that's the difference between, I suppose, where you've got model and theory and great conversation, but no action. And the action belongs to the individual, not the coach who's delivering any work with them or the, the mentor. Um, and I would say, you know, sometimes the person who's not moving forward is a hard conversation around, do you want it enough? Like, ask yourself, let me ask you, let me get to a position where you maybe don't even like me for asking you this question. And you don't want to contract me for any further work because this question scratched at the raw nature of who you are. And actually, you didn't really want to go there. You just thought you did or you, you, you had a perception that it would be okay to just do a few little things and you'll be better. No, you need to ask yourself, how much do I want this? 
You know, and if you don't want it enough, you're not going to make the change. And I think what can really help you with that um, is who's your team? Like have a team of people that will exist around you that can be your guides in different ways. You know, so no secret, me and you don't talk a huge amount over a 12-month period. But the fact that I've got your phone number in my phone means that you're in my team. And if I need guidance from you, I know exactly what guidance I require from, from you. And you perform a really perform a, a really specific role in that team. And so does maybe five or ten other people who I I I look to for that's the person I would have the challenging conversation with. That's the person I would have the conversation around. Am I just spouting philosophy that has no relevance? And that's the person I'll have a conversation around the pragmatics of life. So I would say, you know, find your team and and if you're brave enough, contract them. Like have an honest conversation saying that you were in my team and this is what you're in my team for. Is that okay? When I call upon you, this is the type of conversations that I, I'm going to probably have with you and I need you to not be all empathetic. I might just need you to be the role that I've asked you to be, which is the, you know, the pusher, the challenger, the hard work, the, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, I think having a team is, is massive in this. I, I really like the idea. And when it's one of my go-to exercises, I frame it your personal boardroom. You know, who's yeah. in your personal boardroom and, and looking at the various attributes that you need around that table. Who's your finance director? Who might be your HR person? Who might be your, your well-being person, your personal trainer? So it, it covers all aspects. I, I really like the idea. You have looked at it. You put your words to it, which is brilliant. And, and I guess it changes over time, does it? Yeah. Yeah, I would say. And that's why, like, again, I think I said to people, we've not met our, we, we don't know if we've, we've met our best friend yet. So if, you know, I'm not dead yet, I've got many years to live in theory. So I've got many people to meet. So if I have an open mind enough to go, I'm, I've not met, not yet met my best friend, I'm more likely to meet some really, really healthy, awesome people who are going to help me at some point rather than just sticking with, yeah, those are my mates from work. Those are my mates from, mates from school. Those are some people I've accidentally picked up along the way and we've connected. No, actually, if I look forward and go, how many more amazing people could I meet? And, and, and what guidance could, could I offer them and they offer me? And how could we create a really supportive sort of relationship? So I'd say year on year, I'm gathering, it's probably not the right word, but gathering more and more relationships that are really beneficial. Just in the last 12 months, I've met a couple of people who are just honest people, honest people who you can go, I've got this idea. Like so recently, I've had an idea for setting up a t-shirt company. And I asked for, for, for different people about the thoughts around it. And the, the responses that you get are really, really valuable rather than it just being a conversation in your head. And it makes you go, okay, now I understand what a cons consumer or a HR director might think about this or a finance director might think about this. So, yeah, I, I, I think the, the boardroom evolves as you evolve. You need to continually keep adding people to it. And if you, like I say, I think committing to telling people that that's the role that they perform I'm probably not the best at telling people. That's why I'm phoning you. you, you you're, on, you're in my boardroom. Um, I think they know it, but I should probably maybe be a bit more overt about it. When did you pick up, Kurt, that that was an important concept for you to really help you move forward? Because, I'm, again, I'm thinking of those that are listening in here thinking, oh, what gets me over the line to start thinking about these things in terms of a boardroom? Or why would I need a boardroom? I'm wondering what, what it was, was the catalyst for you to think, actually, this is what's going to help me become a better version of myself. I think... Again, like, so my wife teaches me every day. Um, so, you know, that, and that one of her lessons was you're not going to do this on your own. Like there's no way, and not in a bad way, Kurt, you can't cope or you can't do it. You know, I've got a six-year-old, well, she was two and a half at the time. You know, you, you're not going to do this on your own. I was like, well, you know, how do I manage this? You say, you know, as you say, we're both from South Africa. Like pretty much all my family are from South Africa. My father was born in Yorkshire and his family, emigrated to South Africa. So it's not even like I've got like the, the one side of the, the family that live here. You know, there are some family that are here. Um, and it was that. It was like, right, well, I need to gather people who I can trust, who are kind, who are honest, who are authentic, who, you know, will tell you what you need to hear or will fill the fridge if there's nothing in it or will ask you if you're okay, but ask you twice because the first time you just say, yeah, but you don't mean yeah. Um, and then I just translated that into kind of a world of business. You know, I was made redundant and it was a time where you could go, oh, woe is me. You know, I've had all these awful things happen to me and I've lost my job. What do I do about it? Or I could say, well, okay, what adventures could be out there? And, and how do I take those adventures in a way 
that's safe. I gather people around me that will be advisors and, 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 and just kind, I suppose, during that period. So yeah, it was, you know, and that was probably, you know, started obviously five years ago, but from a business context, I probably only really did it about three and a half, four years ago. So, but yeah. And you mentioned there about sort of redundancy and a few kind of difficult times. Are there any examples or times in your life that come to mind where you were, you know, were struggling and you can give us an experience as how did you turn yourself around? You you have shared some ideas, but I'm just thinking any low patches where you thought, right, I caught myself here and this is how I've overcome it to get kind of back on a a level playing field or an even keel. Talking. Right. talking so i didn't i didn't see redundancy actually as a bad thing i i needed to make it my choice so i'd interviewed for a job and i was due to have a phone call from the ceo as to whether i got the job or not and i wasn't sure if i actually wanted it after i have had after having had the interview um so i needed to make a decision before they made the call and um, i remember being on a, on a train journey to edinburgh and um just saw the call coming in knowing that this was going to be kurt you've got the job or you haven't got the job and i didn't take the call um, because I hadn't made a decision in my head. Yeah. Um, I delivered a workshop up in Edinburgh, came away from it, and on the train on the way down, I needed to know that the call was going to come again. So I just made sure that I was ready for it. And I just made a, a decision in my head that actually redundancy was the best thing for me because it was better to be Kurt moving into a space that he could grow within, even if it was without a job and he had to set himself up as a consultant than it was to go into an organization where I had to conform to a number of things that, you know, just wouldn't have fit with me um, because I was, I was in that like, ex- like a multiplier effect of growth. I was just suddenly growing and growing, growing really quickly and knew that if, I, if I'd have stayed in the organization, that would, have, that would have halted. What questions did you ask yourself to come to that decision? Because that's not something that probably just happened on the train journey. It was, did you build up to that? That was just the catalyst or the, the point in time. How did you get there for, for those that might be in a similar place? Sounds cheesy, mate, but I just wanted to be happy. And I just could feel taking the job would, would give me security, wouldn't give me happiness. I mean, it'd give you a great pension if you were, if you were to get to pension age. It would give you decent insurance if you... If you died and your family would get a payout, it would give you um, decent holidays. There was all those things, but none of those things were saying to me, I'm going to be happy. None of those things were saying, you're going to drive into work every day going, I've got a wonderful job and I love where I work. It's a good job. It wasn't a bad job. It was just, I, I knew it was just, it was time for me to leave. And thankfully, you know, that period, redundancy packages weren't that bad. So it was like, take this, take this leap of faith, not even a leap of faith. It was just take this, take this step. because. What's the worst that can happen? I could live at my mom's. Do you know what I mean? She's got a spare room. Like I could lose everything and still have a roof over my head. So it's not, I just realized it wasn't a huge risk. I just, I just had to make choices. I had to make choices, which is, so again, we'll come to, we'll go straight to the book recommendation you talked about. So I bought a book called How Much Is Enough straight away. And this, this text is about asking yourself the honest question around how much money do you need to live the lifestyle that you desire? And you have to be honest with yourself about that lifestyle. So if you desire a Rolls Royce, a 15 bedroom house with 14 toilets and, you know, massive acreage, well then you're going to live a different way to someone else who maybe is a little bit more like me, which is just need to pay the bills, pay the gas, electric. I don't need loads of assets. You know, I need to look. So when you start looking at actually how much is enough, you realize that maybe you were earning more than you needed. So then you take the pressure off your shoulders around income generation and work out You only need X and X is about supporting things like health and well-being as well as financial. So yes, you need to pay the mortgage, but um, you need to balance it with your well-being as a human being. So it's not just a financial measure here we're talking. We're talking about actually you as a person. Yeah. Okay. Well, it says how much is enough to live the good life. And when they look at the good life, there's like six or seven attributes. And it's about, you know, physical activity, connection, community, um, social relationship, uh, like finance and stuff like that. There's a number of things in there. They use different words, but it is that sort of six or seven items. And it just made me realize that actually the job would have given me financial security, but it might not give me any of the other things. And actually to be redundant and to create a life around what my child needed at that time and maybe what I needed as a growth person at that time was probably more important, which might mean that I earn less money, which might mean that I uh, dress less well. But actually, if I'm happier as a consequence, then it's the decision 
the right decision to, to make. And I, you know, like I wasn't silly. So for three months, I didn't have a job for three months. Um, and, and you could say I was a consultant during that period. But in those three months, I met lots and lots of other consultants. And I was very strong with the questions I asked them. What, what's good about it? What's bad about it? What do you love? What do you dislike? What gives you anxiety? What keeps you up at night? When are you happiest? And I started to work out that actually most consultants live in a period of anxiety a lot of the time because they're wondering where the next piece of work comes from. Okay, so I don't want to be that person. How do I remove that anxiety? I do X or I do Y. I put a strategy in place. Um, most people want to belong to a greater good. So whilst they want to work for themselves, they would prefer to maybe work part-time or have a, uh, an ongoing retainer with an organization. Okay, so that's something that I might need to manufacture. Um, most people like the freedom but wanted some level of security okay so that's back to that needing um one or two clients that are regulars okay so it started to give me an idea as to if i was to be a consultant which i am now that's the way i would have to build it or should build it to give me the security remove anxiety allow me to craft a, a lifestyle around my daughter's school and um, that sort of thing you mentioned right at the start you're, you're working some in sport you do some work in education you do some corporate stuff where does sport sit in your world and and why does it hold the position it does you know what's your connection to the world of sport for you uh loads uh, fat fat kid who got thin um right. you know it was just a way I, I played team sports and it didn't really work out for me because i couldn't work out why people weren't helping each other and they were just playing for themselves so i decided to start running um because then it's all down to you and it's a real teacher in a sense that I remember running across country at about age 14 or 15 and giving up. You know, I started walking halfway around. Worst thing I ever did. That stuck with me for years. And I was like, you, you chose not to cross the line in the way that you could have. Um, so I think sport has connections, you know, around um, you know, whether you agree with it or not. It's an old language, but it's muscular Christianity. And this idea around sport being the builds the foundations for how to live our life in a, in a in a society where rules exist. So if you can play a game within the rules, like a sporting game within the rules in a healthy way, you in theory should be a healthy participant within society. So you know you know I've just been playing one touch outside with my daughter on the on the on the driveway, and we have some rules for the game. So if she breaks the rules, we can have a conversation about them. They're setting a precedent for her behavior within society. I'm not asking her to be a conformist, but I'm asking her to understand that, you know, certain rules are put in place either for our safety, our well-being, or the safety and well-being of other people. Um, so I think sport has so many ways that it can guide. Um, and then, you know, there's the performance side of things. You know, business are always looking at performance sport, assuming that they've got it nailed. And the reality is they haven't always got it nailed. So having that rich conversation between businesses and sports, we've got this misperception of each other's success and that sometimes we're just fumbling in the dark, but we're just fumbling better than other people. What message do you often take from your work within sport to your corporate business side of things? What message do you think transfers really well? So a key message that I keep trying to say is that, so if you look at an athlete who is an indoor, let's say a runner, indoor and an outdoor season, so they peak twice a year, predominantly in the indoor season, the outdoor season. So they'll have a period of developmental phases, building themselves, readying for that. Then they'll have this peak and there'll be a volume and intensity in terms of work and output and, and what they're trying to achieve over that time. But then after that peak, they'll taper off, they'll have a rest period and they'll go again. So if you looked at that on a graph, you would see two peaks with like um, a rising and a falling either side of it. Now, if you look at an employee in a work environment and you ask them how they're performing, they're often being asked to perform at their peak all year round. Like unless you're like a seasonal worker, an ice cream salesman where, you know, it's heavy during the summer, but then during the winter, you've got to kind of like diversify and do something else. You know, most people office based, they're, they're working at their peak every day. And that's a requirement of the system, their bosses and stuff like that. So I, I like to say to people, okay, let's chart your 12 months. And I want you to put a line on there that tracks your volume of work and the intensity of work over that period of time. And I want you to draw it in a sense that where you're feeling it's highest and lowest. And now I want you to either share that with people so you can share around a room and everybody, oh, that's really interesting. Or if you had acetates, let's lay them on top of each other. And let's now look at the, the stress or the stressors of volume and intensity across this group. You know, in jet, like for example, you might go, look, in April, 
everybody's spent <laughs> and you're asking for more from them. So how do we change the way that we work in a week, in a month, in a year to allow you to taper, to allow you to peak stronger or higher, to allow you to have a rest period or to look out for each other when you've got high stress and high, high volume and high, high intensity. Balance the resource of the organization, I guess, or the team. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we, we did it. We did we we did it once with um, strength and conditioning coaches at Roughborough University for all the, the the sports teams, and I asked them they do these annual plans for athletes, but they've never done it for themselves. And when they drew their own, and they looked around the room and realised that that's why they that's why they were bickering at certain points of the year because they were all pushing it and stressed. And then they noticed that sometimes they were getting upset because somebody else didn't look like they were doing much work. Well, that was their taper. They just didn't realize it. It's not that they weren't doing work. It's that they were recovering from a really heavy period. So you start to understand why people aren't busy at certain times. It's okay to be not busy because they're about to get hit by a shed load of seasonal work. So it's, yeah, it's, um, I think it's just an important thing to, to know that as a human being, it's not just athletes that can peak or go high or go low all year round. It's or not all year round, but, you know business people educationalists you know need to look at themselves in the same way and there's some key principles and i really like that idea of the transferability from the, that world of sport to how do we manage our energies in the corporate world you know and i think there's some key messages there are there any other messages that you bring across because i i know that this is a real sort of passion of yours and you work on it a lot and bringing the learning principles from sport into into business well, I just think it's, 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 not, it's less sport into business. It's, I think it's just more, um, whether it's sport, business, or, or, or education, yeah. we're dealing with two things that are exactly like similar. One is we're all dealing with people. Right. So all of these things, their success or failure is based on how well those people perform as individuals and as a collective. So that's number one. So teachers yeah. in a school, uh, people in a business, or people within a sporting organization or, or a team itself. And the other thing is performance is based on our ability to learn and apply. So the second, second piece is that we're, we're dealing with learning, whether it's business, whether it's sport, whether it's education. It's in a context, yeah. Yeah, like, so, it, so what I like to look at is go, okay, so how is sport approaching learning? And how is that different to how education is pr- approaching learning? And how is that different to how L&D p- p- practitioners within business are approaching learning? Are they doing it the same, just using different language? Or has one found a trick that the other one doesn't know about? Can we get those people in the same room to talk about the best way around that? Can we deal with the myths in the right way? Um, and then the people piece as well. You know, how do we how do we get collaboration? We talk about it. It's a great word. You know, I'd struggle to spell it when I'm slightly slightly dyslexic, but saying the word collaboration and getting true collaboration is very different. And where do you see that? Well, you might see that in a football team in a highly tuned environment where they 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 understand that the need of what's required in that game at that point in time. But does that collaboration exist outside of that game? And how would you translate any of that into business? And, and have you seen it? Do you, do you have an example of where collaboration works or where you feel learning really does take place in a really deep and sort of enriching kind of way? I think they all have like something unique um, in terms of like doing this well. But I got asked this question by uh, a lady who works at, like I think she's like head of L&D for uh acre like an oil solutions company and um we were talking about peter senge or peter senge's fifth Senge, discipline yeah. Fifth discipline, yeah. yeah. The, the learning organization yeah. and um, she just sort of said to me you know is you know what what is a learning organization and does one really exist and i and i said no i don't think they do and i said i, th- I don't think i don't think these are endpoints. i think we're on, we're on journeys to be the best learning organization we can be. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody's doing it exceptionally well. I think more we should all continue to ask ourselves to do it a little bit better. Um, so I know, like in teams that I've worked in when I was employed, you know, uh, one of Peter's is about um, personal mastery. So like, you know, I know there's times where I've been in teams where I, I didn't have any personal mastery. I wasn't getting better at anything or choosing to get better at anything. I was just doing a job or just pressing send on an email. So, but there are other times where you could say, um, one of the, uh, Peter's kind of perspective is this, this concept of um, a map of the world. So, you know, I see the world through one lens, um, but collaboration comes when I can see the world through your lens and you can see it through mine and we can debate 
not who's right and wrong, but why we see what we see and how we can come to some level of progress, which might not be democracy, you know, in terms of like, uh, does everybody agree? It might be actually some of us don't agree, but we think this is the right path based on what needs to happen. So, yeah, I, I, you know, no, I can't say I've met one organization, one sports team, one educational institution that's nailing it. But what I can say is I've met lots of people that continue to choose to try. And I think that's the difference is the continue to choose to try. And in the world we're currently in, you know, how, how does learning sit for you, do you think, in terms of accessibility to, to information and, and the application of it? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're going, we've just been through quite a serious pandemic. Um, we're in the middle of it, you might argue, still. How do you view learning and, and the application of, of information? And, you know, what, what's going on for you, would you say? Um, so we touched on this a little bit earlier. I think, uh, well, I think in terms of information, I think we're saturated. Um, in terms of availability. I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but what I'm saying is it's very easy for a learner to pick new stuff to learn. You know, this podcast being an example, yeah. but you know, there are WebExes, webinars, there are um, audiobooks you can listen to. There's so much out there um, in terms of access, but that might simply be knowledge and information. And what we have to be careful of is not continually to gain more knowledge and more information without understanding its relevance to our context or having a sense-making conversation. And I think this is where, you know, this is probably a, a contentious point maybe, um, but I, I posted a blog a while ago, is, is when will people pay for learning again? And it's not that I'm saying, oh, woe is the learning and development practitioner out there, which, you know, I'm one of those, you know, please pay me some money. It's more, don't forget the value of the conversation with somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to understanding or sense-making. and. You know, if you continue to milk the free pail, at some point it will run out and that service you're after, that, that, that guidance might not exist because the person um, that has been providing you with the free hour of conversation or with the, the, you know, the subtle guidance or the, you know, don't worry, yeah, yeah, I'll send you some stuff to look at. And they have to pay their mortgage at some point. And I think there's this concept of gratefulness and gratitude that needs to return in the learner's mind. And again, a previous blog I wrote was about, and I can't remember the levels, but there was like sort of five levels of gratitude. One might just be simply me saying thank you to you, but nobody else knows about it, but I've told you. Two might be me saying thank you to you in a virtual environment so other people can see that. Um, Three might be saying thank you, but illustrating what I'm thanking you for so other readers can see that valued uh, proposition there. I'm thanking Dave because Dave helped me move forward because he can do these things. He has these skills in. So now somebody reading it sees a sense of what Dave's capable of. Like the fourth level might be me recommending you to somebody else or suggesting people should look your way. And fifth might be, you know, at the right time when finance exists, I pay Dave. So I pay Dave later. I pay, I pay your discretion. I pay my discretion. So suddenly I get a, a contract that pays me well enough that I can now pay back all the people that have guided me in terms of them paying it forward, um, that sort of thing. And I think learners who are engaging in free learning from different people or just people who are engaging in free services need to be asking themselves, you know, if I can pay, could I pay? And what would I pay? What can I afford to pay? Lots of one pounds do add up, you know, don't like belittle it, but equally, maybe you're affluent. Can you pay for somebody else who can't afford to pay? So is there a way of saying I'll pay plus one? So I think, yeah, learning, the environment is saturated. We don't go to libraries anymore, but um, like not in the way we did, but that was a place where learning existed and it was saturated, but we didn't go. Now everything's online, it's easy accessible, and we're being overwhelmed by free information about stuff. We, we need to filter it as a learner and choose the right stuff and then do something with it. Now, a really good learning and development practitioner, that's, that's how they can be your guide. They can help you with the filter. They can help you with the translation of it. They can help you with the sense making of it into your context. They can be your sounding board uh, rather than just a, you know, a coffee conversation. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what will happen in the coming months around anybody who works across business, sport and education in terms of learning and development. Do you have a sense of what will happen? You know, I know you say you're intrigued. Do you, do you sense we will return to the way where people did value it because it hits such a dip or... What is your sense? Uh, I think there's multiple paths. So I think there'll be this perception that, well, we did loads of things online during COVID, so we can continue with that. And I think online is there for a reason and a purpose, yeah. but it can't replace face-to-face. It doesn't have the same resonance with people. Um, 
So uh, there'll probably be a mistake made around too much stuff being online until people realize it's not having the desired impact and then we'll return to face to face. Um, I think there will be a number of really good people who haven't established themselves yet with a, with a market who will cease trading. Um, uh, and that might be because they haven't been able to re re retain a client because a client has done something else or has ceased themselves or they didn't bank enough money to prepare for not having an income for a period of time. So yeah. we'll lose some really good people from the system. Um, and I think there'll probably be a bunch of people out there, you know, and I'm not, yeah, it happens. There'll be a bunch of people out there that will be, copying and pasting from environments to push out content really quickly. And it might be misinterpreted as quality and it might actually be belonging to somebody else and not um, applicable in the, in the, in the right manner uh, for the context it's been shared in, but somebody sees something nice and shiny and picks it up and says, Oh, we'll go with that. So yeah, I think a, a bunch of those things mm. will occur. And, I, and, I, and I'm just hopeful that I, I am somebody that manages to, kind of um, ride this ride this wave and exist at the end of the period yeah, and, and navigate it and make sense of it because I, I, it's it's really a great point you bring up there because it's something i've really been considering the idea of actually gathering information as opposed to the application and the use of it and i think there's a real difference between it, having it and actually using it and applying it and and actually what you picked up for me also is that connection into your into your environment and the importance of that and i think that's the role where people can really see the difference and make the value call on that because it's not about just having it. It's actually making a difference in your world that brings the value. Um, what I would like to do is just take us through to the last section of the podcast where I really want to pick up on some of the things you've talked about in terms of really adding um, some great value to our listeners. And what they tend to do is like to take a few things away. So I'm going to ask a few quick fire questions where hopefully we can give them a few additional nuggets. We've, we've talked about loads of great things in terms of frameworks and a few mottos and so on, but I'd like you to, to give us a few more takeaways. And what I'm going to go to first is you mentioned one book already, which has really influenced you. Do you have another two or three books that you would recommend to our listeners that would really help them explore some of the content and some of the concepts you've mentioned? So, uh, I have, but what we'll say is, um, if you're looking for books, take yourself off to a charity shop, and buy books that you wouldn't necessarily come across. If you read all the books that everybody else is reading, you will see the same things as everybody else is seeing. And to be different in this world, to be unique, to stand out, is to actually pick up the book that other people aren't looking at and try and understand where that fits in your context. So that's, that's something I would advise. And, and I know this goes against what you're just saying, but can you then share one that you've maybe picked up and give an example of how it's really helped you or challenged your thinking? Yeah, so... Uh, I, 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 I like this book, uh, The Art of Being a Brilliant Teenager. So it's not a leadership book, but it's part, I think it's far better than most leadership books in a sense that it's real and it's written for kids who are lost in this world. Now, if you look at yourself and instead of just saying the title teenager and you put adult, it's the same. But what, what this book tells you is there are different gangs. There are good gangs and bad gangs. Which gang are you in? And it, and it, and it, and it tells you a real truth about being missold happiness. And it also talks about, um, if you read it as an adult, like I wrote something about this and I said, if you're an adult and buying this for a teenager, read it yourself because it'll tell you some home truths. So I think it's really good in sense that it actually tells some adults some home truths. So I think that's good. Um, another book I would suggest is probably uh, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. What I think is really good about that book is it's, it's um, just a series of short stories around successful people and how they become successful. What are their habits, uh, what are their routines, that sort of thing. So it's just really easy to dip in and dip out, and that's really good. And then a, a random one from a charity shop, which is um, Touch, a book called Touch. And it's just all about the value of physical contact and what that can promote. And it does actually have a sports story, and it talks about a basketball team who were, let's say, more amorous when it came to kind of like physical contact. They were like, you know, lots of back slapping, butt slapping, you know, high-fiving. And then they looked at a comparable team who were very more reserved in that sense. And they looked at their performance over a period of time and they saw those that were more physically in, in physical contact performed better. Now, it might not have just been the physical contact, but it's what comes with that. So it makes you think about a learning environment. and How would you create one where um, it has more senses are accentuated or being kind of like called upon? So I just think there's just random stuff that you can find from these books that are worth a little look at. Brilliant stuff. Great. And I love the idea of coming, again, looking at it through slightly different perspectives, which is kind of what we're trying to do through the sports stories is give people an opportunity to view things from different 
viewpoints and different perspectives and challenge the thinking rather than just taking things as the, the gospel truth sort of thing. So great yeah. books. Thanks for that. Um, in terms of technology um, and software, what are your go-to applications or what do you, what would you not leave home without that's really helped you on your journey to, to be the best version of you? Uh, so when you ask that, I got like a little icky feeling. Like actually, I'd probably right now not have any tech. <laughs> I just put it away. Um, but if there was something that I, has been exceptionally useful, it has got to be Twitter. And it's not just following people; it's engaging in a conversation with people, and then actually connecting with them either virtually or physically. Um, so I'm kind of one one where if I if I've connected with somebody on LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter. Um, I want to have a phone call with you. I want to check out who you are. I want to understand who you are. So I'd say they're great places for learning and for connections and for finding your tribe, that sort of thing. So, I'd, yeah, that, yeah, I'd say that. Good. I like it. Um, and given the work that you did around the, the Comrades Marathon and preparing yourself to be able to perform, and obviously it was a, a very difficult time of your, your life as well, how now do you prepare yourself mentally and physically to be the best version of Kurt, you know, and also obviously looking after your young daughter. Look after yourself. Yeah. Um, so uh, eat well, sleep well, um, and, and consider life hacks. So just because you're told that you need to run, you know, 20, 30 kilometers every couple of days, if not back to back, because that's what you do when you're running an ultra marathon, doesn't mean that is actually the way that you need to prepare. I've, I've crossed the line of two ultra marathons with very poor traditional training and found alternative ways to train within shorter periods of time and still you know, manage myself through those. So I think that don't be afraid to find a life hack. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say it's all about preparation and that simple things like eat well, sleep well, uh, find joy in your life. Brilliant. And one of my favorite questions, given the highs and lows of your story and your career and your life both in sport and personally looking back now what advice would you give to a teenage version of yourself yeah so I, I i looked at this one number one believe in yourself now that's not enough what i've learned is uh time your message so you might be right but if the timing's poor you'll you'll get missed and then consider the language you use because the language is important for it to be heard. It's not good enough to be right, or it's not good enough to have a great opinion. It's important to understand when to share it and in, in what way to share it. If you can do that, your message will land and you'll, you'll get where you want to be sooner. I was a petulant child for too long and just thought I was right. I didn't understand timing and I didn't understand language and that took a long time to work out. And I, I feel as a consequence of those lessons, I am where I need to be now, but I could have been here 10 years sooner. Great stuff. Really, really uh, very useful message that I think in, in both personal and the corporate and business world in, well, in any world that you're in, I think it's a really great life lesson that. And what I get a strong sense from you, Kurt, and obviously I've worked with you, I know you pretty well, and I know that one of your passions and desires is to help yourself, but also to help others in terms of their learning and development. Which three people do you, would you refer back to and say have made a really big impact on your career and life, and why? I, I find this, I, yeah, this is, you asked this question years ago when we were on a workshop, and you asked me to write six people's names on a card. And then you, you, you said, imagine if your name was on a card. That freaked me out. I was like, wow. <laughs> um, and it was a really good activity, and I wish I could recall all of it. Um, I've got to say, my, my wife, like, as, mm. as, you know, before and even after illness, like, I don't think I realized how amazing the messages that she was sharing with me were, and I didn't notice them as vividly as I have done now. And, and she's, like I say, still a companion and a teacher in, in my life on a daily basis. So, so that's number one. Um, I don't know if I have a number two and number three. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I think there are lots of amazing people that have gifted you lines just when you needed them and they've lasted with you, you know, and, and, and it's your job to listen into those messages and decide what to do with it. But yeah, I think, yeah, I think I'm happy with that. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. Um, and then given your story, you know, you've shared it. Um, and I, for one, truly believe that there's many nuggets in your journey that I can refer to and take away, both in terms of the language and the mindset that you've used and how you've overcome adversity and really picked yourself up, but also your desire and your purpose to take things forward and make a difference in the world. And I'm just curious as to know, 
whose sports story would you like to hear from and why? <laughs> Chris Akabusi. <laughs> and why? <laughs> I, just, I just remember him crossing the line during one race and just knowing that meant everything to him. Just every, you know, it's a different to crossing a line and going, I've won. Like the man fell to his knees and he was just holding onto his head and he was just so amazed with his own performance. And I was like, in that moment, what is happening? You know, that's not just a four-year journey, but that would have been a four-year cycle to get to that point, if nothing, you know, not else. It's a lifetime to cross. That people see a 40-second or a 10-second or, a, I don't know, a few-minute race or even like a 10K, and they assume that. And it's not. It's hours and hours and hours of commitment, even when you're not motivated. So, you know, someone of that ilk, just to, you know, that would be amazing to just, you know, because as a young person seeing him do what he did, and for some reason, I attached it to his story. I you know, don't know why, but I was just like, this is this man. I, I think I cried as a teenager watching him in some races. But yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a very strong image, though, still, isn't it? It sticks with a lot of yeah. people that saw it back then. But I, I, and I love your point there about actually the 10 seconds or 20 seconds or the minute that it takes to run the races that these people are in. It takes hours and hours and weeks and years of preparation and, and blood, sweat and tears. And I just think it's a really strong message that the hard work that goes into these things. But just to hear the hard work that he did put in and what it looked like and how he came through, it just sounds like a really interesting um, yeah. story to pull out. So, so thank you for that. Um, and Kurt, it just leads me to really sort of say thank you for sharing your journey. I, I've heard parts of this story before. I've learned loads more about you today than, than I've known before. And I just feel and sense your passion and desire to really help individuals move forward and I think some of the clarity in your messages has been really really key um, and your vulnerability and your openness in sharing both the highs and um, and the euphoria of running those marathons and, and putting yourself through the pain through some of the lows in your life as well and how you've really take those lessons actually out of it to, to steer you and guide you and make the connections going forward. So thanks for sharing all of that. Um, I do also wish you good luck in where you take this on next. And I'm for one would love to be part of that journey or hear how it goes, because I'm sure there's still a lot more to offer um, going forward. Like you said, you know, we're not dead yet. We've got a lot to offer. Let's go out there, enjoy it. And I get a good sense of that from you. So um, good luck with that. Should anybody have listening in wish to find out a little bit more about what you're doing, how you're doing it, how, how might they be able to, to make contact with you? Just uh, like Twitter's the easiest thing, at Coach Developer. And honestly, just say hello. Like, I love meeting new people and conversations. Like, it doesn't have to lead to anything other than a, that, that, that one sort of like moment of like, I met a new cool person and I've listened into their story and they're shared into mine. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, there's this whole thing around people trying to find their purpose. And I've worked really hard to figure out what mine is. And sometimes I, I'm, I'm still not sure. But what I've realized is that if I can continue to be of value to people, then I don't have to worry so much about my purpose. So, you know, if you contact me, don't think it's a burden on me. I think it, you're making me feel valuable. So, you know, like get in touch, do it. You put yourself in places to be found is one of your strap lines, which I often often listen to and hear. So once again, thanks again for, for sharing that. They've got your Twitter details. What I'll do is I'll make sure I put uh, those contact details on the show notes attached to the podcast as well. But other than that, Kurt, Thanks ever so much. Keep in touch and let's have you back on the Sports Stories podcast in the future for part two. How does that sound? Brilliant, mate. And thank you very much for asking some good questions and for choosing to do this. It's, it's a brilliant thing, mate. So I'm, I'm pleased to have been part of it. But it's been lovely to kind of listen to you and ask these questions. You have these questions asked of me, so I appreciate that. Great stuff. Well, thanks again, Kurt. Take care and see you soon. So there we have it. A very interesting, honest and thought-provoking conversation. For me, Kurt didn't disappoint with the openness of his stories and experiences, especially the ultramarathons, but he also really delivered a number of fantastic quotes and questions to make us think. I particularly like the saying, put yourself on the start line and get in the race. This is such a positive affirmation and I like the positive nature and the way in which it encourages us to make the most of our personal potential. The other saying amongst many that he shared, which I really liked, was, you're not going to do this alone. I really have come to recognize within me it is being honest with what you can do and what you can't do and asking for help and support is a real strength, a strength that should be encouraged and nurtured. This leads me to pose a couple of questions which I hope help you consider how you turn up and perform in the world. This also plays to Kurt's mantra of be more each day. So the two questions I pose are, when are your peak work times in your year and when and how do you rest and recover to be at your best? 
This works with some of the key principles of performance sport and planning and when to peak and when to taper. The second question is, how do you frame and how could you reframe the way you look at things to help you be the best and productive version of yourself? As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the questions. You can contact me via the website at www.sportstories247.com. As you may know, my intention is to provide inspiration, education and motivation through the Sports Stories podcast. Over the coming months, further resources will be available to help you, so keep a lookout. A last request for me would be, please tell your friends, family and colleagues about the podcast and please also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps new listeners find the show. And as always, it's been a pleasure having you with me today, listening to Kurt. Take a look at the show notes for some of the quotes, sayings and recommendations. Enjoy your week and I look forward to you being with me, Dave Levine, again next week for another great Sports Stories podcast.